Welcome to Season A of Sashimi. For Episode 4, I interviewed Alok Ajmera, CEO of Profix, a CPM software company out of Canada. We started our conversation off with Alok sharing his unique path to CEO and then discussed how Profix managed to convert from on-prem to cloud while remaining a bootstrapped company. In the last portion of the interview, Awok discussed why they decided to take outside investments and why they chose HG Capital. Fun fact, Profix Software has an NPS score of, ready, 81. Enjoy the interview. Awok, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Glad to be here. Before we dive in into Profix, could you please say a few words about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, I've been uh, at Profix for almost two decades, done a little bit of everything while I was there. Uh, started with an engineering background, kind of focused on technology, software development, but over time just evolved and grew and, and got really interested in how to scale organizations. So I'm, I'm an engineer by trade. I love building things and uh, have become over time passionate about how to build organizations. And you're currently CEO, but I think you started as a consultant to the company. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting story. I actually started uh, right at ground level, first uh, kind of entry kind of type of position. You know, never planned it to be this way, and I always thought in my mind, okay, every couple of years I'm going to move around and jump from one company to another. And what ended up happening at Profix is that you just fell in love with the culture. And every couple of years, I said, okay, that's it. I'm I'm ready to go. And another opportunity seemed to open itself up, and I ended up moving horizontally, vertically, diagonally, and and eventually uh, found myself in the position that I'm in. Let's talk about Profix. For people who don't know, how do you describe the product and the value proposition of it? We play in a category of software called corporate performance management. And acronyms aside, you know what we do is fairly straightforward. Uh, every organization, whether small or very, very large, has a finance or accounting group. Uh, those groups have various processes that they run, whether it's you know an annual budget process or they have to get certain reports out every month, et cetera. And a lot of those processes are incredibly manual. They're incredibly slow. Uh, they're Excel-laden. And so the first part of our value proposition really is, how do we digitize the work? How do we streamline it, create better workflow, kind of automate a lot of the manual processes so they can save time, energy, uh, you know, strip down any kind of errors and in human intervention? And I suppose the second part of the value proposition is, you know, once you've saved a lot of time, uh, how do we allow our customers to reinvest that time in doing more value-add strategic work, understanding the data that they have, understanding kind of trends and where the business and the organization is headed, extracting valuable insights that can then support the operations of the business, make smarter decisions. I believe CPM is quite crowded field. How do you guys compete? Yeah, it's definitely a crowded space. There's been lots of investment over the years, lots of uh, fundraising activity in our space. Uh, there's a couple different ways. Um, so first of all, it is very regional. So depending on the region you're in, you'll find different competitors. Uh, so that's part of the part of the challenge. But you know, our focus has always been around building enterprise grade technology. So being able to satisfy very large organizations with regards to their planning, forecasting, budgeting, analysis capabilities, but making it more accessible for smaller mid market companies. So build very sophisticated enterprise grade technology, but make it accessible for mid-market organizations. So we've really zoned in on you know that mid-market, which is how we segment. It's usually companies that are sophisticated, require complex planning and, and analytical tools, uh, but don't necessarily have the, the IT organization or the appetite to spend to be in that kind of enterprise uh, bracket of, of products. 
And from the size perspective, like if we talk about middle market, can you uh, define that? I'm going to define it the way we do. And it's a pretty broad spectrum, but it's companies that typically, you know, maybe start in a hundred million dollars, but all the way up to the lower enterprise where, you know, the single digit and billions of dollars of revenue. Uh, so obviously it, it flexes pretty broad. That's a huge kind of swath of the market. Uh, but you're really looking for companies that have a kind of growth orientation, a sophisticated office of finance, a, a forward-looking CFO that really understands that part of the job is obviously looking back and understanding the numbers and the data and counting and doing the accounting piece. But another value-add function is really looking forward. When uh, it comes to pricing, I'm curious, what's your pricing model? Do you charge per seat, per volume? We try to keep the pricing as simple as possible. Unfortunately, a lot of times when at least we see SaaS organizations they have incredibly sophisticated or complicated pricing models. Uh, you know, think about our end user being an accountant. They're very sophisticated and savvy with regards to the financial aspect. Uh, so it's very straightforward. It's you buy a user. We don't we don't kind of make it any more complicated than that. You don't have to buy different modules. You don't have to buy different. It's how many users would you like? How many people are going to interact with our application? You mentioned that you've been with the company for almost two decades. It tells me that the company started on prem. Absolutely. And where are you now? I'm, I'm assuming you, you move into cloud. Can you yeah. kind of walk me through the whole journey from going from on-prem to realizing that you need to move to cloud? It's an incredibly complicated journey. So if you have listeners out there that are thinking about it or planning it or probably in the midst of such a transformation, it can be incredibly complicated. Uh, just to add a wrinkle in terms of how we did it as well, up until very recently, we were bootstrapped 100%, no, zero institutional equity investors. It's founder-led, bootstrapped, uh, which adds an incredible degree of complexity when you're doing a cloud migration. Uh, going back to your original question, think about that journey. Uh, there's the first part, which is the business planning around, look, we we see the trend, the business is definitely moving more and more to cloud. Interestingly enough, oftentimes people think that transitioning a business from on-prem to cloud is really a technological transformation. It's how do you transition your product? That's 100% true. So for us, going to the cloud was taking our current product and rewriting 100% of it to be native in the cloud. And that in itself, the way you develop products in the cloud, the way you operate your operations, your DevOps, your cloud ops, like everything has changed. It's very much different. Your cadency for release management, everything changes. And so there's definitely a transformation that has to happen on the engineering side of the organization and then how you build the technology. But it's actually more complicated than that. just that. Uh, the way you sell the product, the way you position, everything kind of changes, the way that you service your customers, your focus on customers and retention changes, the financial metrics that you look at, done properly, it's a 100% rewrite of the DNA of the company. It's an exhaustive change management process. It took us probably three or four years of hard work and heads down effort. Uh, we're at the end of it. You know, the 100% of the business is cloud focused. We only sell cloud products today. We're happy to be done with that phase of our journey. <laughs> but, you know, I will say, Oftentimes, I see I see a lot of companies going through this transition, obviously. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. Uh, it's capital intense. So I mentioned we did it when we were bootstrapped. Uh, effectively, when you're going through that transformation, you're pushing revenue and cash into the future, which is cash intense as you're going through this transition, right? Uh, so you got to be very careful. The margin of error when you do a transformation like this when you're bootstrapped is very, very thin. If you make a couple missteps or if it takes longer than you think, 
you can burn a hole into your balance sheet, which is not a good position to be in when you if you need to raise capital. And when you say you push the capital in the, the future, you mean that it requires a lot of capex. Yeah, and then when you're when you're acquiring your initial cloud customers, mm -hmm. you have a business that's acclimatized to taking 90% of the cash up front from the customer, right? When they're buying perpetual and paying for services and everything, you're just taking a lot of the cash right out of the gates. Now you're selling those same customers in the cloud and you're collecting that cash over three years. And so as you're transitioning, it's very important to plan out the business side, the cash flow side of the transformation, because you know at the beginning of that transformation, you're still kind of heavily relying on the cash flow that comes from selling perpetual, but you need to wean yourself off of that while you build up the recurring revenue to get to a critical mass such that the cash flow is positive again. And that, that kind of start and end of that journey is very precarious. Like it, you're burning a lot of cash as you go through this. Now, if there's a future light, which is cash should recover because it's recurring revenue. But, you know, if you don't do it well, or if you burn too much, or if you're not successful in the transition, or if it takes too long, uh, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble, which is why typically most companies would raise capital before doing the transition. Having said that, you don't get the valuation you want because you're getting yeah. you're getting a valuation based on the fact that you're going to do the transition, right? If you do it and then raise capital, you get the valuation of having done the transition, which is a substantially higher valuation. Yeah, you covered a lot of topics that I actually wanted to double click as you guys tend, uh, tend to say. <laughs> so, so when it comes to collection of, do you collect monthly or year in advance? Year in advance. Yeah, we're we're fortunate in that sense. There's definitely industries where you have to do it monthly, and and a lot of B to C applications are monthly, right? Yeah. And then you have to incent the customer, you give them a discount to prepay in advance. A lot of B to B applications tend to be collected annually, mm -hmm. uh, which at least gives you that cash flow one year at a time. So yeah, we we, we bill uh, one year in advance. I'm assuming you still have a legacy clients who are on prem, right? Yeah, uh, there's still a, a kind of a long tail of of customers that are on the on prem product. We've communicated to them all. They know the life cycle of that product and, and we've given them a migration path to the new product. Well, first of all, just because they're on-prem doesn't mean they're bad. They're wonderful customers. They're paying us you know, high margin maintenance. It's great recurring revenue on its own. But ultimately, you want to see them unified in the cloud so that you can manage one product uh, and you get that lift. Hopefully, if you do well, you can, you know, one of the big metrics you look at is if I'm getting $1 on-prem, how much lift do I get if they're in the cloud? And so done well, it's complicated as well, but done well, you can see a pretty healthy lift, which is a nice kind of boost to revenue as well. How's on-prem solution different from the cloud? For us specifically, initially, not, not much. When you're doing this transition, the first major milestone is, can you get to feature parity? Because you're starting from scratch, can it get to parity with your on-prem product? Uh, having said that, since then, we've obviously focused most of our energy on our roadmap on our cloud products. So we are enhancing capabilities, et cetera. So there's features and functions that are obviously different and better in the cloud. Uh, I would comment on a couple of things that are, I think, more significant that are really only available in the cloud. Uh, several years ago, we put a lot of energy and research effort into really understanding what AI type of capabilities, ML, uh, natural language capabilities would be beneficial in our industry. And if you think about ML, you know, incredibly resource intense, you're using a plethora of other applications that you can weave together, it's just much more suited for the cloud. And so where the product is now completely deviating is on the emerging technology side. So a lot of those capabilities, you just never would, we would never do on-prem anyways, and they're easier to execute in the cloud. You mentioned that there is a lift on the price, right? 
I'm wondering, how do you, you incentivize your clients to move from uh, on-prem to cloud, especially if there is a higher price? That's a great and complicated question. <laughs> if you boil down what you have to do, you have to go to someone and say, hey, congratulations, you purchased this car that you own. Now, can you please trade it in for a very similar car, but on a lease? That's the ultimate goal, right? And so if, if you speak to our customers who are accountants, that's a crazy proposition. You're telling me that I own this car, I bought it outright, and I have to trade it in for a similar car on a lease? That doesn't make any sense. And so the way we've approached it is said, okay, you know what? A customer pays us currently $1 in maintenance, and we, we want to get them to pay $4 as an example. How do we articulate the $3 gap? How do we fill that with incremental value? That's really the problem you're solving. If the customer sees $3 of incremental value, then they're happy to pay $4 for moving into the cloud. And so that managing that gap and understanding the value differential is super important. If you can, you want to see like a, a really solid upgrade, I think from an industry benchmark perspective, is if you can get a greater than 3x return. And so historically, our run rate is actually getting close to 4x return on customers going from on-prem to cloud. And it's because we focus all of our energy communicating with our customers on identifying, well, you're paying $1 today, but how do I provide substantial value such that you're, you're excited to pay me $4? And part of that value comes from just being in the cloud. Look, there's value to the customer for us managing the infrastructure, always being on the latest and greatest technology, better info security in the cloud with us than their own. Now, part of it comes from there's incremental functions and features that they get access to. Part of it comes from there's newer technology that they were excited about ML as an example, they can do that in the cloud. So really it's a concentrated effort to identify each individual customer and tell them, look, how do I fill that gap so that you're willing to pay for? Because if I can't get you the over the value hump, then you're going to push me down to $2 or $1.50. And at the end of the day, it's still incremental. However, like our mission is to provide value so that they're willing to pay. So I would encourage you know the changing of thought process. It's not trade in your car for the same thing. It's actually trade in your car and get a substantially better car, but on a lease. Yeah, but like I'm a finance guy. If you come to me and say like, well, you're paying X for this car. How about 4X for this car? I mean, unless it's a helicopter, I'm not, I'm not taking it. <laughs> so... Well, that's it. You have to show them a helicopter. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, got it. That's, that, that's a great comeback. Thank you. So how did the go-to-market change with uh, this uh, transition to cloud? A lot of it is just internal, right? It's getting the organization acclimatized for how to position and sell cloud when historically they've been positioning and selling on-premise and initially against cloud. So a lot of it is internal change management around messaging, around kind of the overcoming perceptions in the market of who we are, because traditionally we were selling on-prem. So that's a lot of it, a lot of the work is building awareness, kind of legitimizing our cloud offering in the market and making sure that people understand that we are a cloud vendor with latest and greatest cloud technology, and then going through the change management for our internal organization to get them acclimatized. So it's similar when you're doing that transition, you know, you have to transition your organization because you have a sales force that is compensated on selling software originally, and they're used to selling perpetual software and getting that big kind of chunk of quota coverage. And now you have to convert them to selling subscriptions, which initially they actually get less quota coverage, but there's a gradual transition there. So to answer your question specifically, nothing dramatically changed with regards to how we were going to market. But we did have to do a lot of tweaking to one, raise the awareness in the industry that we are selling a, a 
a world-class cloud product. And then also we, there was a lot of internal change management around getting our sales organization head around how to position and sell cloud and how do they get compensated and getting their head around their new comp models and all that kind of fun stuff. Can you tell me a little bit about the comp models, how they changed? Yeah, look, in a traditional on-premise world, most sales reps are compensated you know, on the perpetual license, the maintenance up, drag along, and then maybe some services. And so you had these quotas that were substantially larger, but that covered that entire kind of gambit of the three various products, right? Uh, and then ultimately today, we only compensate our reps on ARR. So how much ARR are they adding to the organization? And so it's in line with what the business wants, right? At the end of the day, if you boil down a cloud company, it's you're selling subscriptions and you're trying to retain subscriptions. So the faster you grow your subscription base and the better you are at retaining your subscription base, the better organization you have. It, it really boils down that simply. Yeah. And so it's incentivizing the, the sales organization on two fronts. One, if they're hunters, how much subscriptions can they add and how quickly and how successful are they at that? At Proflex, at least that's 100% of their compensation. It's quota, coverage, commission, bonuses, et cetera, on ARR targets. And then if you're a farmer, because we separated kind of hunting and farmers, if you have a customer base, it's a little more nuanced, right? You're compensated heavily on obviously cross-sell, upsell. Uh, but at Profix, retention is one of the critical metrics. So as a, as a farmer, you're also compensated on your portfolio's net retention. Can you share the number? Uh, our net retention? Yeah. Uh, we float between 105 and 110. Oh, nice. Oh, Speaking of that, so you obviously have a customer success team, right? It's, it's what you just described. And mm -hmm. you mentioned that they compensated based of the cross-sell, but you also said that your offering is pretty much per seat and everything is available to the client. Can you help me to bridge the gap? Yeah, for sure. So first of all, let me comment. Our, our customer success organization is actually quite nuanced. There are account reps that are selling. There's also people there that are more kind of on the product adoption side, really ensuring that customers are getting value from their solution, they're adopting it, they're expanding the use, et cetera. And then there's more traditional kind of success managers. So there's a little bit of a triangle, if you will, of you know the commercial side on the selling, upselling, renewals. There's the overarching quarterback who's kind of the success manager. And then there's kind of the product people that are there just to really ensure that customers are adopting and, and getting sticky and ultimately getting value, right? That's the end of the day. Uh, to answer your question, really cross-sell upsell is a couple things. So in our world, what ends up happening is uh, customers usually buy for a particular pain point. They're coming to us and saying, oh, you know what? I I do a consolidation every single month. It's disastrous. I need, I need help resolving this consolidation issue. And they buy a footprint. And then as we get into that account, there's two things that happen. We say, okay, you know what? Congratulations. This is working well and you're getting value. Let's reinvest that in expanding to your reporting process. Okay, now there's more users that are going to be involved. And now let's get you involved in how you do your annual budget or a forecast. And then we just keep extending out within the Office of Finance, solving uh, more and more problems that our typical Office of Finance would come across. The second part of it is saying, okay, congratulations. You know, you're getting a ton of value in solving these problems for the Office of Finance. How do we solve similar problems in other parts of your organization? So you, you love working with us. You have great NPS. You know, we're a great vendor. You know, let's introduce us to your sales operations organization and we'll help them streamline some of their reporting requirements. Or you have a project management organization and you want to do project profitability. Okay, let's solve problems there. So there's a kind of an internal extension. And then the last part of it is 
you know, you have a parent organization or you have a, your bunch of portfolio companies that you own. Okay, well, how do you sponsor us into those accounts? And let's start stretching our tentacles out and, and selling new instances. So it's really about if you can build a fantastic relationship with a customer and if they get exceptional customer experience and if they can get real tangible value from your solution, then you want to see how you can turn them into proponents or advocators to help extend your reach within that organization. And that's typically how we get our you know, 105, 110 net retention. It's going in and selling more seats or more new instances to other companies within their ecosystem. And can you share the NPS? Yeah, our our trailing 12-month NPS is around 81. Oh so it, my, holy. And so I, <laughs> I am a, I, I told you, I'm an engineer. I, I measure every single thing that I can possibly measure, whether it's customer interactions, whether it's, I'm a data guy, uh, whether it's our employee interactions. And then we, then we look at how we can improve. So I've been tracking every customer interaction. We, we track something like 45 different vectors to calculate a customer health score. NPS is just one of them. So what we're trying to do is really make our customers love working with us. And we find in the mid-market, it's incredibly important. If they enjoy the interaction, if they get value from the interaction, they're going to renew. But if you don't, they'll just go. It's not like buying an SAP product, you know, back in the day where you've put so much money in front and now it's that you can hate them and still have to be stuck on their product. In the mid-market, it works a little more dynamic where if they're not enjoying the experience and getting value, they'll go. And so we spend a lot of energy understanding how our customers are working with us and trying to remove all points of friction so that they just have an exceptionally smooth experience. How big is your team, Alok? Uh, the organization is probably will cross about 400 employees this year. That's fascinating. And what's your org structure of the company and how has it changed when you transition to cloud? There's a couple components that have changed. Look, it's not overly different. We have, uh, we have an R&D organization that's headed up by a CTO. We have a product organization. We have a customer success uh, or a customer experience organization, a sales and marketing organization. So we have this a fairly traditional or standard functional components to the organization. I'd say the big things that have changed as we've transitioned to the cloud, obviously a, a much bigger emphasis on infosecurity. So a lot of energy, you know, we have a security first posture in the organization. Uh, everything that we do kind of built up from a privacy security perspective. Again, if you think about what we do, we're handling customers, financial, personnel, there's a lot of PII in our system, et cetera. So uh, it's incredibly important that uh, security is there. So that, that would be a major kind of organizational change. We had to build out an entire function around InfoSec. Other than that, you know, there's been lots of tweaking, lots of adjusting, lots of cultural changing. There's definitely more people in our technology, DevOps, CloudOps organization uh, today than there would have been in the past. I work with uh, private equity funds that acquire software companies and convert to SaaS. As, as you said, the main value proposition for them, it's just, hey, you convert to SaaS and suddenly your multiple is much higher. You guys bootstrapped, you converted to SaaS and then you accepted investments from HG, which by the way, I did not realize that it's a giant firm from Europe that invests in IT technology. Could you walk me through the thought process why you decided to take money so first of all, yeah, H HD Capital is is a massive European technology investor, and they're growing their presence in North America pretty aggressively. But I guess to your question, maybe if I re-ask it, it's, it's effectively, 
what changed and why did we decide to partner with a private equity company now? We could have done it a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, et cetera. Look, we were in a good position, and, and this is what I would always recommend, where we didn't actually need to take the capital. We focus a lot of time and energy on building the organization so that it's very growth oriented, that it is generating positive cash flow, so that we are never in a position where we need to take capital. And when you do not need to take capital, you have way more optionality with regards to what you may or may not want to do with your business. That's a that's an important point. So what we what ended up happening for us, uh, we exceptionally proud of the fact that we had scaled so significantly without taking any capital. And so we spent a lot of time and energy actually from a company culture perspective, unifying our organization against those that raise capital. So we spent a lot of energy saying, hey, look, we're we're not like them. We're different. We're better because we've done what they've done without any capital. And so it was definitely a shift from a strategy perspective when we sat back and said, okay, it's time to take on some capital. So now to answer your question, what, what was our thought process and why did we go down this path? At the end of the day, we had hit a good inflection point. We had done the transition. We were seeing our growth in the 100 plus percent range from our cloud perspective. We were exceptionally confident about how we could sustain that type of growth for the next couple of years without taking on any capital. We felt like the go-to-market strategy, the funding level, we didn't need capital to execute on the next couple of legs of our journey. Uh, however, we were at a good inflection point. And so we kind of sat down as a, as a leadership group, as a shareholding group and said, look, if we are going to raise capital, we should either do it now or we should execute the next three to four years get to the next couple of stages because we feel confident in our ability to execute and then raise capital. And so what we ultimately decided is to say, you know, why don't we put our toe in the water? There's a very substantial opportunity that's presenting itself in our market today. Capital could allow us to accelerate in a way in which we haven't been able to do in the past, uh, whether it's, you know, much more significant investment in certain areas, whether it's kind of thinking about M&A for growth perspectives, et cetera. So we said, you know, why don't we put our toe in the water? We have, we don't need to do anything. Let's see what opportunities might present themselves. And then we can assess what we would like to do once we know what the options are. And so, in fact, when we went into the process of raising capital, there was a, in my mind, there was a very high probability that we were not going to do anything, that we would entertain the various options. We would see what was out there. We would see what kind of partnerships are out there. And then we would just decide to continue on our own for the next leg, get to another level, and then, and then reopen the conversation again. Uh, what ended up happening, however, is once we put our toe in the water, we were overrun with interest. I was blown away by how many different, for whether strategic or financial sponsors, came to the table with re really compelling rationales. Uh, we ended up shortlisting it to a, a group of private equity companies that we just felt there was tremendous synergy between what our vision was and our culture was and what their vision was and their culture was. And then we ended up kind of locking in on HG just because we felt just the opportunity for us to partner and take our game up a couple of levels really quickly was just too much to pass on. Did you hire an investment bank? We did. Yeah, we did. We uh, we went through a process for that as well, where we interviewed and went through a, a selection process for with five or six different uh, investment banks, some in Canada, uh, most of them in the US, uh, big ones, small ones, et cetera. We ended up uh, narrowing it down to a boutique firm called Shea Co., which is based in Boston and in San Francisco. Amazing. I can't say enough high things about Michael Shea and his organization. There's about 30, 40 very boutiques focused on enterprise B2B SaaS organizations. They know their stuff. I'm super happy that we went down the path of getting a boutique investment banker that really understood the world that we were in. They told us exactly what was going to happen. 
timelines, valuation, everything, and and they delivered. So super happy about that. And when you said uh, there are a couple of levels you want to achieve, do you mean you want to go up market only with your client base or there are certain strategic initiatives that you're pursuing? Yeah, definitely didn't mean go up market. Although, you know, we service, we, when I mentioned that mid-market, it was a pretty broad range there. Uh, so d- definitely not going specifically at market. Again, I, I told you at the beginning, like I'm an engineer, I love to build. I love building and scaling organizations. And I looked at the organization that we could probably build and scale on our own. And I thought about the market opportunity that currently presents itself and really realized that we could build a very significant multinational organization mm-hmm. uh, with the support of a partner. Gotcha. And so it's really about scaling up the organization, broadening the reach, and really growing at a to something that would be substantially bigger than what I think we could have done on our own. And how is working with HG as an investor and working without them different? How involved are they day to day? It's a good question. It's a... Uh, it was a point of contention when we were going into the process. So obviously not having an investor being kind of your own board, you have 100% control and accountability. And obviously when you're going to give that up, you're thinking about, oh man, what's life going to be like with potentially people breathing down my neck, right? And although we are one quarter in, so we're probably still in honeymoon phase, uh, it's been amazing. It's it's absolutely amazing. I, I love the, working with those guys. They're just very much aligned. We're on the same page. They are super sharp. Uh, they bring capabilities and knowledge to the table that help us accelerate. Oftentimes when you're doing this, especially on your own, look, we'll get to the same answer, but sometimes we struggle or we make mistakes and we have to iterate and we have to learn and we have to trial and error. It's just amazing to have a group of people working with you that are motivated and equally aligned who have done it eight, nine times already to help us mitigate pitfalls and mitigate potential challenges. To answer your question, how active are they day to day in the business? Not very. They are heavily involved at the board level, at the strategy level. They have a whole operating team that we can draw upon uh, for expertise, whether it's on the growth side, on the technology side, et cetera. But day to day, like we run our business and the senior executive team is probably exposed to the HG team, various meetings and updates, et cetera, but they're not boots on the street hand-holding us or anything like that. That's fantastic. I want to ask you the last question. So for people who want to transition from on-prem to cloud, what are the main thing that you think they should focus on and something that you probably done wrong in the beginning? You know, the the first thing I would say is if you're going to make the transition, have the conviction to follow through and make the transition. Like rip the bandaid off. It's incredibly painful. But if you stretch it out and turn it into a five, six, seven, eight year, nine year journey, like you're just prolonging the pain and you're not going to get the upside from a, that you're hoping to get. And so what I would highly encourage if you're in the process or thinking about the process or wherever you are, it's make the decision and go. So a lot of challenges that I see, and we did this initially as well, is you know, you're saying, okay, we're cloud first, everything's cloud, rip the bandaid off. And then a customer or a prospect comes to you and says, hey, look, I'd like to buy on-prem software. And it's like, I, I've seen it so many times. I've had conversations with other CEOs who are in this position and they're like, oh, well, I'm not going to turn an account down. It's like, no, you have to have the conviction to do the transition, which means convince that customer to go to cloud or don't take them on because you take them on and you're giving yourself a crutch. Think about every time you bring on an on-premise customer, you're adding debt to your organization that you have to resolve over time. You're, taking, you're getting cash, but you're creating a problem for yourself down the road. And so what ends up happening is oftentimes you say that you're convicted, you have conviction and you want to do it. 
but then you're not following through and that ripples down the organization. They see the inconsistencies and then they operate in a way in which that is not full of conviction. It is a painful process. There's no doubt about it. It is difficult and heart-wrenching to see what happens to your cash flow and what happens to your revenue because you're used to taking all the revenue up front. But it's like stomach the pain, know that you're on the right path and focus on getting out of it as quickly as possible. That would be my advice to people who are thinking about this, especially if you bootstrap, you know, know what you're getting yourself into and then either do it or do not do it. <laughs> That's a super, super helpful advice. Alok, th- I just want to thank you for a fantastic interview. It was great. Yeah, no, absolutely. And listen, if you're if you're listening out there, your audience member, and you're like, this is super compelling, or we're thinking about going through this transition, find me on LinkedIn and message me. And I'm happy to talk one-on-one about all the pros and cons and pitfalls of uh, of doing the transition.